With that, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles for this week's scripture reading. It is Ezra chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. Ezra chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. I invite you to stand as you are able as we read God's word. Now in the second year after the coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout and the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is God's word. You may be seated. Morning, everybody. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here. I'm thankful to open God's Word with you today. We are continuing our series through Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, thankful that God's Word is two-edged sword, able to cut. His Word is powerful. Um, I say that because I feel weak today. I uh, just feel needy for the Lord's help, and I'm glad that I can rely on Him and His Word to do the work. Um, I'm also thankful that you... Those of you who are here, you braved the cold to come. Thank you for making it here. Those of you who are at home, sipping your coffee, joining your fire, we miss you. We do. Enjoy it, though. Um, I'm thankful that we can uh, gather and continue to use this place. This has been such a blessing. Um, I have a question, just to start us off this morning. How do you deal with disappointment? How do you deal with disappointment when things don't go your way? About a month ago, I had my birthday. Darcy, my wife, asked me what I wanted for my birthday meal. And I thought, man, I'm turning 40, let's go big. We're going steak. Let's get some steaks. So she bought some nice steaks, a big stack of them. And uh, I, I turned on the grill, got it ready. I read, you know, online how to go about, I'm not, I'm not a chef, I'm not a culinary artist by any stretch. So I Googled something and figured out what I needed to do, and I put the steaks on the grill, and I went back inside, and just a couple minutes later, I smelled burning fire, and I looked outside, and that whole grill was on fire, all those beautiful steaks, all I wanted was steak, 
I ran out there, I pulled all the stakes off, they were charred bits of charcoal by then, and the stakes were ruined. I was so disappointed. I was so disappointed. I had been looking forward to that steak. We, I you know, was going to share it with other people, but it didn't work out. I was disappointed. That's a small disappointment. But what about the big disappointments in life? What about your big disappointments? What are you disappointed with? You don't have the life that you want. Your job isn't what you wish it was. You wish you had more money than you do. You wish you had more stuff. You wish the relationships you're involved in were different. You wish you were different. You wish you were somebody else. And when we look around at the world, in society or in government, or even in the church, we're disappointed. Is it a foregone conclusion, then, that we're just always going to be disappointed? Um, that everything will come up short in life? God's Word tells us the answer to that question is no. God wants to speak into disappointments today. And, it, and I'll just tell you that God has been speaking into my disappointments this week. In a lot of different ways. He wants to speak into your disappointments this morning. I've been praying that He would. I've been praying that a living God would speak through his word to you, whatever it is that you're facing. He wants to bring you hope this morning. A hope that's never going to disappoint. So let's just ask him for that help right now. Will you pray with me? Jesus Christ, you are our living hope. And it's to you that we're looking right now. Oh Lord, I just pray for, for all of us that our hearts would be stirred to hear from your word today. You would come and feed us good food, true food, the food that we really need, the food for our soul. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We want to receive from you today. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your strength and your power, that your spirit would come upon all of us, that we would recognize the priorities that we have in life to be here, the importance of being here with your gathered people, in your presence, to hear from your word. Lord, we are asking that you would come. We are asking that you would Restore. We are asking that you would build for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's do a quick review. Um, Ezra 1, the unimaginable happened. Cyrus, who's the greatest and most powerful king of that time in all the world, he decrees that Israel can return to their homeland in order to rebuild their center of worship, the temple. However, behind the scenes, what we also saw in Ezra 1 is that the greatest king, God himself, was pulling the strings. Seventy years prior to that, the prophet Jeremiah had said that it was all going to go down like that. God told him that they would be able to go back. And that's what happened. This is so amazing. It's so amazing that they're able to go back because if you remember how bad things were at the time, the once mighty Israel is now ashes and rubble. They disobeyed God. They rejected his covenant. They trusted in the forms of worship, that is the temple, the form of the worship, instead of cultivating a heart of worship. That's what Jeremiah was all over him about. He was telling him you need a new heart, a heart that's willing to worship God. They trusted in the temple. They thought that God wouldn't abandon them. We got the temple, we got the temple, we got the temple. 
And God said, you are not obeying me from the heart. And so he exiled them. He sent them into captivity. And everything now is in ruins. The city, the temple, and the people. Exiles in a foreign land. But just like God said, 70 years and they are headed back. God's not done. He's not abandoned them. He hasn't left them. God's promises are true. God's at work accomplishing his plans and his purposes for the world. That's the way that God works. That's who he is. This is the true story, the ultimate story that God is weaving for all of history, that God is writing. This is what God is doing in the world. He's accomplishing a great restoration here. What he's doing specifically is he is taking his people, God's people, into his place where he is, his presence, under the, his authority, under the authority of his word, where they can enjoy his blessing. God's people, in God's place, in God's presence, under his authority, enjoying his blessing. It started that way. Remember, we, we talked about that too. Adam and Eve, it started that way. That's what they experienced. But ever since sin entered the world, that experience, that blessing, the enjoyment of God's blessing that way has been marred. But God, in his great love for us, he didn't want to leave us that way. He graciously continues to bring restoration for us and and with us, he uses us to that. God moves, and then in this story here in Ezra, we see another episode of that. God moves in the heart of Cyrus to open the door to Israel's return. That was Ezra 1. Then in Ezra 2, remember, it was this long list, this list of people, an inventory of people. We saw that God chooses to work the restoration, this great plan that he has, through making and keeping Specific promises. Ultimately, through the promise of a great restorer who would restore his people to his place where he is to enjoy him forever. That's who God is. That's how he works. The God who makes specific promises for specific people, for specific purposes in the world. He has specific promises for you and for me. That's who he is. That's the God that we need. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God who's at work right now. And then last week, Pat walked us through a surprising passage. I'm going to review a little bit with you. And I say it's surprising because it it defies my typical decision-making patterns. In Ezra 3, what we've seen is Israel's packed up and moved the 1,000-mile treacherous journey to a place where few of them have ever been. Most of them have been born while they were still in exile. But it's supposedly their home. And they know, going there, that it's in shambles. Again, it's just speaking to the faith of these people that they had in the grand story, the ultimate story of God working restoration in the world. That's why they went. They went because they they believed in a God who restores. They trusted his promises. They would sacrifice time and money really their very lives, for his purposes in the world. And they get there. All of them. No one's left out. Every single name. They drop their bags, they pitch their tents, and then they have to answer this question. So we looked at last week. What are we going to do first? What do we do now? And this is where it gets surprising. 
they decide to worship first. To worship. If, if I had just moved to a far off place, and I was afraid of the people around me, like it says in verse 3 of chapter 3, I think I'd do the reverse of what Ezra and Nehemiah, what happens in Ezra and Nehemiah. I think what I would do first is I would build the wall, which is what's going to happen in Nehemiah. But I would build the wall. Let's get that wall set up. Let's get our defenses set, get our protection. And then I would probably build a temple. And then after I built the temple, then I would start to worship. But that's not what they do. If you have a Bible, you're looking at it. Look at chapter 3, verse 3 with me. This is just a little bit of a review. Verse 3. They set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings, mornings, evenings. From a purely practical standpoint, that's crazy. That's crazy. It's probably, the the, the more accurate word is probably foolish. Why would they start with worship if they're so afraid of everybody that's around them? We make decisions All day, every day. Most fall into the category of uh, passive decisions, where we don't actually have to choose, we don't actively choose between option one and option two or a slew of options. We simply respond to the situation. Sometimes we do need to actively choose. Do I eat the baby carrots or do I eat the donut? But those decisions don't necessarily have huge impact on our lives. And then there are decisions that do have big impacts on our lives. What job do I take? What major should I choose? Should I choose to foster or adopt a child? And on and on and on. Big life questions. I've had a lot of conversations with people, especially uh, people aged 18 to 25, who want to know what God's will is for their life. Why am I here on earth? What does God have for me? And the truth is, a lot of us rightly want to come to the Bible to look for those answers. But the Bible doesn't often give us explicit direction, does it? Not for those specific life situations. But the Bible does tell us what we must value most. What we must treasure. And what you find is, That if you're treasuring, you're valuing, you're prioritizing the things God's word values and treasures, you're guided and shepherded into all the various decisions of life, big and small. So let me say this a different way. I heard somebody else say this, but it's a bit more sharp. It was helpful for me to hear this. If we're going to get any decision right, we have to get the fundamental decisions the foundational priorities right. If we're going to get any decision right, we have to get the fundamental decisions right. Israel, upon arrival, had a big decision to make. They had a lot of things to do. A lot of important things to do. Things that, as we'll see, are going to take devotion and sweat and money and time. But above all that, above all that, they chose... As most important, gathering together as one man, that's verse 1 of chapter 3, to worship God according to his word. That was what they prioritized. Right now, I'm talking to you right here, right now, 
we are gathered together as one man to worship God according to his word. Gathering together with his people on the Lord's day is essential. It is a foundational part of life. Rightly prioritizing this shapes all the other decisions that we make. But you're probably thinking, Craig, I'm here. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm watching. I'm here. Let me ask you this. Just diagnostic questions I've been asking myself. Why are you here? Did it work out for you to be here today? Does it fit with your lifestyle? Or are you here as one pastor said, to lay hold of the fundamental priority of your life. Worshiping the true and living God. If God is the one ultimate and foundational being in all of existence, and he is, then worship of him has to be the foundational and fundamental activity of your life. The Westminster Catechism begins like this. The chief end of man. The chief end, the fundamental purpose for which we are made. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And to be sure, worship happens in all of life. Paul says in Romans 12 to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Which is worship. All of our lives offered to him. Absolutely. He says in 1 Corinthians that whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, we do it for God's glory. That is also worship and that is also very important. I listened to a podcast discussion this week. It was led by a a professor named Carl Truman. The group was discussing, it was a group of guys together, they were discussing worship. And they remarked that in our modern day zeal to make all of life worship, which is absolutely true, Many preachers say things that aren't helpful, like, it's what you do on the outside of these walls that really matters, that really counts. In a certain way, that's true. I think sometimes people can just show up on a Sunday morning, feel like they've checked the box, and then go about their lives as if nothing about God matters. That's not what any of us should be doing. Monday through Saturday matters. But it can, when things are repeated like that over and over again, this is what they were saying, It can unintentionally discredit or de-emphasize the importance of us gathering together on the Lord's day. Just how significant and how important this is. David Clarkson was a Puritan. And he wrote a long treatise on the priority of corporate worship from Psalm 87 verse 2. Psalm 87 verse 2 says this. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. What does that mean? His point was this. More than all the individual dwellings of Israel, all the different homes where you know, conceivably they were worshiping God, more than all the individual homes of Israel, God loves his gathered people in Jerusalem to worship him. Private worship, you alone with God, is so important. Family worship, whoever your, your family is right now, whoever you're living with, Family worship is important. Corporate worship is most important. 
What happens here ought to fuel our private and family worship throughout the week. This podcast went on to say that as Christians we have access to God through what we call ordinary means of grace. Sometimes people receive a, for example, people receive a a vision or a dream from God and hear from him. Uh, That would be uh, an extraordinary means of grace. But when we go to God's word, we know we will hear from him. That is an ordinary means of grace. Every time you open God's word, you're going to hear from him. Ordinary grace. Ordinary means of grace. Likewise, if we want to encounter God, to meet with God, to worship God, where can we count on that happening? The ordinary means of grace that God has provided is here. The gathering of his people. Sunday worship. Under God's word. Sunday after Sunday. If you want to see a doctor because you're sick, you don't go to the grocery store hoping that you're going to run into her or him in the aisle. You go to the doctor's office. If you want to encounter God, week after week, you gather with his people on Sunday morning. That's where he's going to be. And I want to confess to you this. This is why it's been so convicting for me. Sometimes I don't want to be here. And I'm the guy who's paid to be here. It's my job. I have literally no excuse. I say that to my shame. But this is why Jesus is so important to us. How can a sinful man like me, someone who ought to love being here more than anybody else, I should be the one that loves him more than anybody else, approach the God he doesn't love like he should? How am I supposed to approach God like that? How are you supposed to approach God? By the blood of the Lamb. The sacrifice of Jesus. The peacemaking gift of Jesus that makes my worship acceptable in God's sight and allows me to draw near. How can I get my priorities right? How can I get my heart right on this? How can I prioritize this right? By trusting in the one who had all his priorities right. And he died for me. Which enables me to live for him. They worship God. That's what they prioritize. They worship God together. And it was during that very important month, that seventh month, then they set to work building the temple. And that's verses 8 through 13 before us today. Once again, we see them doing it by the book, according to God's commands. They appoint supervisors to make sure it's done right. Again, according to God's word. Which is a reminder that worship is never a game. It's not a game. You don't just slap it together. It's, it's also not a production. To, it's an encounter with a holy God according to his word. A high and holy time. These people, in response to a promise-keeping God, they set themselves to build. They sacrificed and prioritized and gave to the work of building the place where God would be rightly worshipped. We've talked about this, but this temple project, it, the, the modern-day parallel for us today is the church, is us. From the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle that Moses set up, that elaborate tent, to the, to the great temple that Solomon built, 
to this simple beginning, the temple of God, the house of God, what it meant was the presence of God, that God was there. And where does the presence of God now dwell? It's among his people. How? This is from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. I think it'll be on the screens here. I want you to see it. As you come to him, it's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I hope that, I was praying this this morning, I was hoping that Ezra 3 would make 1 Peter come alive to you. When you think about these people building an actual physical temple, a temple that lacked the luster of the previous temple. The truth was that a greater temple was to come. A greater builder was going to come. He was that chosen cornerstone, precious in God's sight, upon which we as living stones would all be built. He's also the master builder. Jesus is the, the master builder constructing the house of God, not physical dead stones, not an actual physical building like they were constructing in Ezra, but a living building, living stones, people, you and me, a people for himself, a people who, who don't worship him the right way, but he, who he washed with his blood and he built and brought in to his house that we, would, that we would be together and he would dwell there with us. He would make us holy priests, that is, mediators, connectors, a bridge between sinful humanity and a holy, a holy God. We do that for people out there. We're the bridge for them. They want to connect with God. You are the bridge between God and man. And we do that for each other in here. We help each other be that priesthood. To, to be with God, to be in God's presence. The people who offer sacrifices, we offer ourselves to him. We offer sacrifices of praise to him. Praise that he will receive because the sacrifice has been made. Jesus has brought us to him. These people in Ezra knew that to build the house of God, the temple of God was the highest priority. They did not devote themselves to building their own legacy or financial prosperity, though I guess they probably could have. There's probably some opportunities to take advantage of that. Instead, they, they gave themselves to the building of the temple. Money, labor, time, sweat, sacrifice, they gave it to join in the purposes of God in the world. And so what about you? Where do you give your money, labor, Time, sweat, sacrifice. What is it that you're devoting your life to build? Will it last? Give yourself to the work of God in and through his church. Give yourself. When I talk about church, I mean give yourself to one another. Give yourself to one another. Give yourself to advancing his kingdom through this church through his people to all peoples. It's a worthy and lasting purpose. In verse 10, with the foundation lays, laid, they, they pause to praise. Trumpets and cymbals, priests and de decorative clothing, singers and choirs, they praise the Lord and they sing this song. For he is good, 
for steadfast love endures forever toward, toward Israel. Now, however pure their motives were in building the temple, we still find some mixed emotions. Look at verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, now remember, the worship service is still going on. Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice. And when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. When I first read this, um, I thought that this was a picture of godly joy and his good promises coming to fruition, which is what it is, alongside godly sorrow over sin and the effects of sin. That's the weeping. These old folks had seen the former temple. They saw its glory. They remembered God's presence among them. And now it's gone because, and this is what I thought, because of their sin. Our sin did this, and we're sorry. I thought that's what they were, why they were crying. Part of that's true. The temple was gone because of sin. But that actually wasn't why they were crying. Two prophets at that time, Haggai and Zechariah, shed more light on, us, on this for us. In a couple weeks, actually, we're going to pause and go into Haggai for two consecutive weeks to get a little glimpse into their prophecies to this specific moment to understand what's going on even more fully. Here's what Haggai said about this moment. He said this. This is Haggai 2, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And then in Zechariah, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of a Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So what's happening? They're crying out of disappointment. This is a beginning. That's the word that this chapter uses. A beginning. A small beginning of restoring what was lost, of rebuilding the temple. And these men who are crying have despised the day of small things. Have despised the day of small beginnings. Side by side. Shouts of joy. Sobs of sorrow. Most of the group filled with joy because they are focused on the Lord and his faithfulness to his promises. And then this weeping group in tears because they see this as nothing compared to what they did have. The reality in front of them is just so disappointing. Let me tell you something. This has been probably more convicting to me than maybe any sermon I've ever done. I have been praying, and those who are near me know this, I have been praying for contentment for my own soul, my own heart, a lot. I turned, like I told you, I turned 40 a month ago, and those mile marker birthdays, I get way too reflective. And honestly, by the Lord's grace, it was a really sweet time of remembering God's blessings to me. Lots of joy, just like those people experienced at the temple too. But a couple weeks before that, I could not stop the waves of disappointment from crashing over me. I just couldn't. 
I thought, and I hope you can hear me when I say this, I'm very thankful for what the Lord has for me in my life too, but I thought I would be in China right now. We were missionaries for, over there for, I was over there for more than a decade. I thought that's where I was going to be. I thought I would be somebody different right now. I thought I would have different circumstances than what I face right now. That's disappointment. So what's the problem? What's my problem? Where am I going wrong? If my hope is lodged in the things of the earth, I will continue to be disappointed. You know, when I thought about this story, um, I thought about the disappointment of the men who were there at the temple. And my impulse, this is part of my personality, my impulse um, is to run up to people who are in disappointment like that and say, hey, 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 we can make this better. We can, we can do that. But the answer is, the truth is, I can't. We couldn't. That day, we can't make it better. I can't make it better. Nobody could. So what do we do when we're faced with disappointments and there's no way to make it better? A good number of people, I was thinking about this, a good number of people in the world right now are are rightly in turmoil over issues of justice and race and inequality in in the world. And some of those people are simultaneously growing in disappointment with the church. They can rightly point to failures in the church where we've been complicit in sins of oppression and racism. And we can look at the church and her failures in that and in a lot of different areas and we can be so disappointed. And let me just say this. It is disappointing. It's disappointing on that problem and it's disappointing on a lot of problems other ways too. And I know that some of you out there who are listening in or who are right here with me, you've been burned by the church. And I am truly so sorry for that. I, what I want to do is I want to stand up here. Like I want to run to those guys at the temple and say, hey, it's going to be okay. Hey, our church is different. Hey. But if we place our hope in the church, if we place our hope in the temple, No matter how great that church is, it's going to let us down. So where do you put your hope? How do you battle disappointment? Where does joy come from? If you trusted in the temple that day, that day was a day of sorrow. But if you trusted in the Lord who filled the temple, if you trusted in God who kept his promises... If you trusted in the God whose steadfast love endures forever, you rejoiced. Brothers and sisters, we must repent of misplaced hopes that lead to disappointment and turn to him who will never disappoint. Put your hope in Jesus who will never fail you. He will never fail. He has sealed it with his resurrection from the dead. He is the one. He, Jesus, is the one who gathered us together to be God's people. He's done it. He is the one who cleansed us from our sin by his blood. 
He is the one who died for all our misplaced hopes and for all our wrong priorities. He is the one who will present you and me, us together as a family in Christ. His gathered people, he will present us blameless, spotless before God. He is the one who will lead us into true worship, the only way we can truly worship. He ushers us into the throne room of God. He is the one who fuels our work as a church, in the church, outside the walls of this church, this living, active, breathing, resurrection hope. He is the one who makes our kingdom work never in vain, never in vain. And he is the one who will bring us true and lasting joy. He is our hope. He is our hope. First Peter says that all who trust in him have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That, that will never disappoint. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are the sure and steady hope of our soul. And that is because you have conquered death for us. You You have been the sacrifice that we needed. You have brought us together as your people. You are the one true savior of the world, the great restorer that the Bible speaks about from cover to cover, and you are who we need. Oh, Lord, we repent. We repent of placing our hopes in the things of this world, and we put our hope and our trust in you. Lord, align our priorities, our passions with yours, and cause us to believe again, believe again the gospel. You've done it all for us, so we do have hope. In Jesus' name, amen.